Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll continue our study in this uh, very important letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. As you remember, uh, starting in chapter 4, Paul's emphasis has mainly been on the topic of sanctification. And in our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at another emphasis that he makes on the importance of love. So, sanctification, when you think about it, the sanctification that pleases God is always associated with love for the brethren. Holiness without love degenerates into a cold formalism and legalism, a type of Phariseeism. That's holiness without love. It's the older brother in the parable of the prodigal who was obedient, never neglected one of his father's command, and he had no love for his repentant brother, but despised him. That's holiness without love. Holiness without love is really easily decayed into the attitude of a holier-than-thou. Holiness without love can produce pride, arrogance, and is not pleasing to God. True holiness will always be accompanied by love. That's one of the things that Paul, in effect, is emphasizing in this particular passage. Love is so important that Paul is again emphasizing it to the church. And we need to hear the heart of the Apostle Paul as he's emphasizing and reflecting on the theme of love again because this is the very heart of Christ that's being reflected as well. Paul wants the church to have a godly witness to the community. And today, the church is oftentimes embracing too much of the world and we lose our witness. But a big part of our witness is commitment to the Gospel, but also a manifestation of love. Love for one another. Love for our enemies. Love for those outside the body of Christ. So by emphasizing sanctification in this passage, Paul began with the warning against immorality, sexual immorality that we looked at last week. So with the exhortation to chastity, now Paul adds charity. Or comparing the first part of the chapter, he has exhorted them to abstain from lust. Now he says, obtain more love. So that's where he's going. And we pick it up in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Listen carefully to the reading of God's holy word. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. 
so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So may the Lord bless His Word. So as we look at this passage, again, the Apostle Paul in the context of holiness and sanctification, which is the general theme that he's emphasizing now, he's now focusing again on the importance of love. So notice he says in verse 9, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. This expression, love of the brethren, is actually the word Philadelphia in Greek. We have a great city named after that by Philadelphia. But in classical Greek, this particular word meant to love your brother according to birth. In other words, love your siblings. It was a brotherly love within the family. That's the way the word was used in classical Greek. In Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament is based on, the apostles and our Lord Himself made this word apply primarily to love for your brother in Christ. And that's obviously the way that Paul is using it here. We are a covenant family in Christ. We are members of this same covenant. We are brothers and sisters in this family. Every one of us that's a believer this morning, we are in the family of faith, the household of faith, so, so we are brethren. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who we are. And he says to them that you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So he says no one needs to write to you to love one another. So basically they're doing generally a good job of this. Obviously they're not perfect. But he has emphasized their love already in this letter several other times. For example, if you just remember, back in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, we're constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. So Paul was aware of their labor of love. That love was was working and ministering to other people. In chapter 3, he says, now that Timothy has come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love. So, Timothy came back and said, Paul, I just got back from the church of Thessalonica, and their faith is maintaining, their love is maintaining. And that's to the glory of God. In chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul still goes on and prays that God would increase their love. He says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. So, even though they're doing well and generally, there's still more that they can do. But he starts out uh, complimenting them. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. The fact that they were taught by God certainly indicates the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. In verse 8, Paul has mentioned the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and all those. But love is the first one. So the Holy Spirit was working in their hearts and lives, growing this love. He acknowledges that. They've been taught by God. God the Holy Spirit in particular. But also through the commands of God that Paul has relayed to them previously. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that the love of God has been 
poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So again, they were loving one another. Again, not perfectly, but they were, they were generally uh, making progress in that area. Now why is Paul emphasizing this again? This is the fourth time in the letter he's brought up the, the topic of love. And the reason why he's doing it again is just because it's so important. Love is one of the priority, if not the top priority virtue that should be found in Christians. Love is a primary distinguishing mark of a child of God. Again, just remember, Jesus taught His disciples, all men will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, this is how the world outside is going to see whether you're truly My disciple. Do you love one another? And John, the Apostle, in his first letter, picked up that theme when he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. In other words, whether or not you've been born again, whether or not you're spiritually alive, whether or not you've been regenerated, is going to be whether or not you have love for the brethren. And that's the outward evidence that we have been resurrected in our hearts spiritually. That's the evidence. No love, no life is the idea again. So Paul is emphasizing love just because we need to be exhorted on it frequently because oftentimes we don't love as we should. And so just to belabor the point, the primacy of love is seeing that it's love that unites us together. You know, any church is made up of people with lots of differences. Uh, differences on secondary issues, differences in the way we, we prefer some things over others. But it's love that binds us together and unifies us even though there's lots of differences. The early church had the Gentiles and the Jews in one church. Different customs, different backgrounds. You know, Gentiles over there just stuffing his mouth with bacon. And the Jews are over there saying, how can you put that filthy stuff in your mouth? I mean, there are all kinds of differences that were in the church. And yet it's love that binds them together. Without love, the church implodes and then explodes. So love is something that's critical. Colossians 3.14, Paul says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. He's telling the church of Colossae, put on love. It'll keep you unified when all those different, all those different personalities begin to, you know, there's friction and there's troubles. Love one another. That'll, that's a perfect bond of unity. Love also forgives. Another reason why Paul is emphasizing again just the importance of love. Because love forgives. Peter says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes we sin against one another. Sometimes we say things. We hurt each other's feelings. Sometimes we, we do things that are offensive maybe. And what love does is it forgives. It forgives one another. And that's why Paul says, put it at the top of the list. Above every other virtue, Love one another. And keep your love fervent. Don't let it grow cold. 
Keep it hot. Keep it fervent for one another. I mean, this is again, this is basic. It's simple. But uh, man, we need to obviously be reminded of it frequently. Another reason why love is so important is just the nature of love. It gives. John again in his first letter said, we know love by this, that He, Christ, laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I mean, think about that. I mean, we love one another within the family of God so much we're willing to die for each other. He goes on to say on a more practical level in the next verse, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That is, if we love one another, we're going to provide and care for one another, those who genuinely have needs. So in all this, the Apostle Paul is just emphasizing again to this church the importance of loving one another. Love comforts one another, helps one another, encourages, admonishes, rebukes one another, all in love. It's part of the ministry within uh, the local church. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So not only were they practicing it within their own church, but they were practicing it with the churches in that area, Macedonia. Just to refresh your memory where Macedonia is, it's in the green. But uh, you have the church of Philippi there, you have the church of Berea in Macedonia. And they had also gone out and preached the Gospel, so some of the other little towns uh, had churches. And what Paul is saying is that we've heard that you guys not only love one another within your church, but you love the brethren throughout Macedonia, which implies that those churches had communication and interaction with one another. Uh, That's probably because some within the church were merchants and farmers and traders and they would travel to these other cities. They would worship with them. They would get to know the believers in them. When there were needs, they would would use their church to contribute and help out. So there was interaction, inter-ministry among the churches as well. They would have contributed to each other's needs and prayed for each other. So they were showing love not only for their church, but for other churches as well. Uh, We get the blessing of that in FIRE, the church association we're a part of. You'll notice that every week in our prayer sheet, there's a new entry on a FIRE church with uh, prayer requests there that we can pray for. We can show our love for that church by praying for their needs as well. So this was something that was going on in the church at Thessalonica. However, Paul goes on to say, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. You're doing a good job, but you can do more. You can abound more in your love. And this is just simply the the observation that we never become perfect in loving one another. We're always flawed There's always more that we can progress in. Our sanctification is kind of like a a leaky tire. It's always in need of of an infusion of more air. And so our love leaks. And it it drains out. And and we need the Spirit of God to breathe in more of His love into our hearts and our lives. 
Everybody needs that. Every church needs that. And Paul is acknowledging it to a church that was doing really quite well in the area of loving one another. But there's more they can do. And he acknowledges that to them. So this, uh, this exhortation to love is something, again, that we need to take to heart as well. We can excel still more. One commentator, Andrew Young, says that our love can always grow bigger. It can grow in breadth as it reaches out to minister to more of the brethren. It can grow in depth as it enters more deeply into the hurts and the joys of others. And it can grow in length as it patiently endures and forgives the offenses we sometimes suffer within the church. So love can always grow. It can always excel and get more. From there, the Apostle Paul then moves to verse 11. And now he, he, he shifts from the relationship of the church within itself, loving one another, to more or less uh, outside issues and outsiders in general. Our relationship with them. So he says in general in, in verse 11, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and to work with your hands just as we commanded you. So now the apostle gives some specific areas the church needed to work on. They need increase in love, but there's other things. And these, these items that Paul brings up here are probably because there are some issues, some struggles, some troubles and problems in the church in these areas. Uh, oftentimes, Paul's letters are addressing issues that he's heard about in the local church. So that's probably the case here. He starts out by saying, make it your ambition. Aspire to do this because it's honorable. That's kind of what the word implies. Make it an important goal of your life. And then he mentions three specifics. He says, number one, to lead a quiet life. A quiet life is basically a life that's not engaging in disturbing activity that's upsetting the peace of the community. It's kind of the idea. A quiet life is an orderly life. It's a peaceable life. It's not one that's, that acts rashly based upon maybe your view that that um, Christ is coming back soon, which is kind of the very next section of 1 Thessalonians 4. You bring in the second coming. And some of these problems may have been linked to a misunderstanding about the second coming and about this idea of the imminency of His return so that some might have been acting in ways that uh, were not to God's honor in response to their misunderstanding. That possibly could be here. They're out stirring up issues or whatever. They're not living calmly. Um, and Paul basically says, don't cause a public disturbance. Be law-abiding. And this is probably in light of so that you don't bring additional unnecessary persecution. Uh, but don't go out and, and burn down businesses like you know the BLM riots. Or don't go out and destroy property where it's at the capital or any place else. Don't, don't be given to rioting. Live a quiet life. Be, be respectful for other people's 
persons and their property. Don't just go out and make a, a, a bad scene that is not honoring to Christ. Lead a quiet life. Now obviously, there are exceptions to that. Uh, so we've just mentioned some earlier that if you're out preaching the Gospel, it may cause a riot. And those riots are, are okay if you're just preaching the Gospel. You need to be wise in all of that too, for sure. But again, remember the Sanhedrin tried to silence the apostles because they were preaching in the temple area and because they were, they were concerned that he was stirring up a, they were stirring up a riot, stirring up trouble. Well, the gospel is divisive. We certainly understand that. And uh, we know that this is not in any way saying don't preach the gospel. Uh, the, Paul and his associates at Thessalonica were accused of upsetting the world. Well, sometimes the gospel upsets the world. But uh, in general, what he's saying is lead a quiet life. Not one that's out you know, creating chaos and, and destroying the peace of the community. So that's a general kind of an exhortation. And then he moves on and he says to attend to your own business. And literally, the Greek says just attend to what's your own. And generally, what this is uh, suggesting is don't be a meddler in other people's business. Don't be a busybody. That may lead to um, sticking your nose in, in people's business where it doesn't belong. It can also lead to a, a critical spirit. If you're always out there with your eye on other people's business and, and everything that they're doing, it can lead to kind of a critical or a nitpicker, hypocritical uh, spirit to the brethren. And obviously what Christ tells us if it, if it tends towards that direction is to take the beam out of your own eye before you remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Because Jesus doesn't want us to be hypocritical and being so critical and hypocrites that we, we just uh, get on people for every little area where we think that maybe they're wrong. It's, kind of see the, it's hard to see the brother's speck in his eye when a telephone pole is sticking out of our eye, right? So basically he's saying, mind your own business in general. Now he's not saying, of course, don't confront sin. He's not saying mind your own business and let your brother live in sin without confronting. Not, he's not saying that, of course, at all. He's not saying don't investigate genuine needs within the body of Christ because they may need the financial support and, and we've got to know what the need is, for example. So he's not denying all of that. So that's when it does become our business to make sure we care for everyone within the church. So this is he's not talking about that, of course. But generally he's saying don't stir up mischief by gossip and complaining and sticking your nose in everybody's personal business and then becoming critical of them when they don't agree exactly 100% with you. So attend to your own business. And then he adds another one, work with your hands. Now you don't want to be woodenly literal here. Uh, I can just imagine some people saying, well look, Paul says you've got to work with your hands 
So if you have a white collar job or you work at a desk and you got to quit that job because Paul commands work with your hands. You got to do a manual labor job. That's the only kind of work that pleases God. Obviously, that's not what Paul is emphasizing here. So be on guard against a wooden literalism uh, that certainly goes beyond the scope of what Paul is actually trying to say. Uh, It is true that probably most of the people in the church were probably engaged in manual labor. Uh, They were probably artisans. Some worked on farms. The slaves who were in the church uh, would do manual work for their masters. Uh, There could be also business owners who managed work. Paul, of course, worked with his hands in making tents. But he's not saying you have to quit a, a desk job to go find something where you actually work with your hands. He's just saying, work. Be involved in honest, legal work is really kind of the idea. Be a worker. The issue is that um, apparently some within the church did not want to work. And the reason could be either out of laziness or, again, as I mentioned earlier, a misunderstanding about Christ's anticipated return. Kind of a parousia hysteria well christ is coming back so hey let's just quit our jobs and we'll go out and 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 uh, we won't work and we'll just get ready and we'll be watching but we won't work and so they expect the church to support them that may have been kind of what was happening here um glorifying in christ's second coming certainly is commanded it's admirable we need to be watching we need to be waiting Uh, but it shouldn't turn us into a wild-eyed fanatic in church history there have been groups at times that have gotten so involved in the imminent return of christ as they understand it that they've just quit their jobs and gone off and and lived in seclusion or whatever that's not what what should be taking place within god's people And yet it may have been something like that. This is an issue that this letter does not resolve that that issue. So in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 11, he has to bring it up again. He says, For we hear that some of you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So again, he has to repeat the same exhortations that he gave them in the first letter because apparently they didn't pay much attention to it. Christ in His parable on the talents clearly indicated that we can be watching for the Lord and engage in honest work as well. Remember the parable of the talents where Christ gave a talent to all of His... uh, or the Master gave a talent to all of His servants And he was gone a long time, then he eventually came back, and they all had to give an account of the talent. Some multiplied the talents, but one did not. Others worked with it, invested it, increased it, they worked with it, but one of them just went and buried the talent. And Jesus, in his parable, says that the master then took that one talent away from him and gave it to the one with ten talents. And then he said this. He said, throw out that worthless slave into the outer darkness and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
I mean, like send them to hell. So the Lord obviously does not intend for us as we're waiting for His return to be inactive in the sense we say, ah, I'm not going to work. I, I'm, I'm not. Don't want to work. I'm just going to wait for the Lord to come back. That's not the attitude of the Lord. Obviously, the, the Scriptures give us a, a very godly work ethic that we should have as believers that was revived in the Protestant Reformation. Um, again, Paul was a tent maker himself when he needed to earn money to provide for his own needs and those with him. But Paul wrote to the Colossian church and he says, speaking of this godly work ethic, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. So that should be our attitude. We should want to work, look for work, but when we do our work, we do it in the name of Christ. We do it to honor Christ. In verse 23, Paul would say, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Consider when you go to work, on if you don't work Monday, get off Tuesday, say you go to work on Wednesday. If you have an employer, do your work not just for them, but do it as if the Lord Jesus Himself gave you that work to do. Do your work for the Lord rather than for men. So apparently there were some in the church that refused to work and so they were bringing obviously uh, trouble into the into the church. They were just going around being busybodies, sticking their nose into other people's business. And uh, and so Paul is exhorting them to turn away from that kind of a lifestyle. The purpose for doing this is found in verse 12 so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So in other words, the Christian can, can give a good witness to outsiders if we're living a quiet life, we're, we're minding our own business, we're not you know, unnecessarily poking our nose into other people's business. And if we behave properly, towards outsiders, they will see it and it may open up an opportunity for the Gospel. So Paul's concern for them in those previous exhortations was so that we would have a godly influence on outsiders. So we want to behave properly toward them and again, not give them any reason to accuse us of wrongdoing so they can find a reason to persecute us. Probably is the idea. And then he adds, not be in any need. So those who refuse to work, maybe because of anticipating Christ's return, uh, they were the ones who were having to live on handouts and having to live on the charity of the church. And Paul basically is saying that that's not good. In the second letter, he'll say if they won't work, neither let them eat. So basically, he wants their testimony to the world to be proper and godly and honoring to Christ. So live this way. And secondly, so that you won't be in any need. And the implication is, so you'll have an abundance to share with others who actually do have need. Paul had to emphasize this to the church at Ephesus as well. When he says, He who steals must steal no longer but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. So part of the blessing of work is that Lord willing will have enough to meet our needs and an abundance to share with those who do have needs. 
And so that's where Paul is directing them. And all of this is an outworking of love. Not only love for the brethren, but uh, love for those even outside the church as well. Paul had to exhort Timothy for families, for example, to provide for their own widows so that the church could take care of those who were widows indeed, those who didn't have a family to help uh, meet their needs. So all in all, Paul is challenging the church to live up to its high calling in Christ. And that involves an ever-growing love for one another. That's something that should describe the church. An ever-growing love for one another. And a lifestyle and a work ethic that honors Christ. Because that gives our testimony to the world that opens up a door for the Gospel. So if we're living a lifestyle that's disruptive or brings about chaos, then that undermines our witness, which undermines the Gospel. So Paul, in love for sinners, make your life such that people will look upon you and they'll say that's an honorable lifestyle and they're more ready to listen to us when we have opportunities to share the Gospel with them. So again, love is the key. Excel all the more Jesus exhorted them. So, how do we do that? How can we grow in our love for one another? Well, first we need to all acknowledge here this morning that we have a lot of room to grow in the area of love. I mean, I know I do. Uh, Love is something that Christ wants from all of us. And we all have room to grow. So how do we grow? How do we grow in our love? I think one of the best ways is for us to look at the cross. And we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, so this is a perfect opportunity to consider this. You look at the cross and you see the love of Christ. And that's our challenge. That's what we're exhorted to imitate. It's to imitate His love. How do you see His love? in His willingness to sacrifice Himself for our sins. He died for all of His children. All of His brothers and sisters, we could say as well in Christ. If Jesus loved all of your brothers and sisters in Christ, then we should love them too. And He does love them all. He loves every one of us. Every true believer, Jesus loves us. And He calls upon us to love the people that He loves. How do we see His love for them? Our brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we see His love for them? Well, He died for them. He suffered for them. He gave His all to save them from their sins that we might be with Him forever. And He calls us to imitate His love for our brothers and sisters. So we're to love the people Christ loves. And if He loved them enough to die for them, then our love needs to follow that example. You look at the cross and you say, that's how much Christ loves me. That's how much Christ loves all of my brothers and sisters. That's how much He loves them. That's the challenge to imitate His love. And He loved them that much. Again, 
just in closing, to remember a few key verses. Remember Jesus in John 13, again, said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How are we to love one another? How are we to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, even as I have loved you? That you also love one another. Jesus says, My love is a standard. You love one another as I have loved them. And then John again, emphasizing this verse again in his first letter, said we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We love those that Christ loves. To what degree do we love them? Christ died for them. He atoned for their sins. We can't do that. But we imitate our love should be towards those whom Christ loves. And He died for them. And our love should imitate His sacrificial love. That's the challenge. And how much we need the Spirit's help to even get close to that standard. But that's what we're exhorted to do is to love one another, even lay down our life for the brethren, because that's the nature of Christ's love for them. We're to love the ones Christ loved and imitate His love towards them as well. doesn't really matter what, other, what the brothers or sisters think of us. doesn't really matter how they treat us. doesn't really matter how they may differ from us or disagree with us. We love them as Christ loved them. It doesn't matter. There's many examples in history of common grace, sacrificial love where people are willing to to sacrifice themselves for others. One that I recently read took place in World War II. It was on the third day after D-Day. Remember when we invaded France at the beach of Normandy? And there was a stretcher-bearer named Gilbert Boxall. So he was a guy to run up and grab the wounded, put them on a stretcher, and bring them back to try to save their life. He was a stretcher-bearer. And he was killed in action on June the 9th, the year 1944. When they recovered his body, they found that there were five dried dressings on his body. In other words, he had been shot. And he put a dressing on it and they were all blood drenched. And he put a dressing on it and he went back out to try to rescue other people. He got shot again. He put a dressing on it. Five times he was shot. Because each time he was wounded, he didn't stop loving. He kept on Loving in that regard. He kept on sacrificing, doing good to his fellow soldiers. That's the kind of sacrificial love even greater than that that we model in the love of Christ. You see, Jesus said there's no greater love than this and one lays down his life for his friend. That's what Jesus did for all of our brethren. And Jesus says, go and do Likewise, I love them. You love them too. Every single one of them. I died for them.
I suffered for them. I carried the wounds for them of my crucifixion. That's how much I love them. The love for us, the challenge is to love those when we're wounded. To love those when we've been shot at and we're bleeding and we're hurting. But to keep on loving regardless of what's said, regardless of what's done, to forgive and to love. That's the love of Christ. That's a love that's willing to be wounded to bring good to those whom He loves. So, it's the love of Christ for us seen on the cross that can melt the hardest heart. And those who have come to know His love can by His grace love Christ, love the brethren whom Christ loves, and to love our neighbor as well. Why is it important? Because love is the premier distinguishing mark of those who know Christ. And let us, by His grace, excel still more.